All right, let's go. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word to reveal himself to his people. He does a lot more than that with the scriptures, but the thing that he does with it above all other things is that he uses it to make himself known to his people. And we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. So if the scriptures are what he uses in your heart and life, uh, to do that in you, like it's just kind of common sense to be pressing into the Bible as much as possible. So if you don't have one, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. Uh, so we are starting a new thing this morning. Uh, if, you, if you haven't been here long enough uh, to kind of watch us transition from one major sermon series to another major sermon series. Uh, we just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago what we would often call, or at least what we would call here, a topical series. All right? um, we had a subject that we wanted to learn more about, and so we built a series trying to figure out more about that subject, and we took that subject to the Bible and said, okay, what does the Bible say about this subject? What does the Bible say about love and about joy? What does the Bible say about peace and so on and so forth? And that's, that's a really good method of approaching things if you want to learn more about something in the Bible. That's a valuable thing. Um, however, as a church, we're pretty confident that that's not the best foundation for a steady diet. Right? It's a good every once in a while thing. It's great in small doses, but it should never be our steady diet. We think it can be valuable on occasion, but the main staple of our diet needs to be something with better vision and ideas and plans than the subjects we just kind of happen to be curious about in a given moment. All right? we, want, we want better than that. And so we accomplish that aim by preaching through books of the Bible more often than we do the topical thing, what we would call an expository series. Instead of taking a, a subject to the text and trying to figure out what the text says, we instead commit ourselves to a text, and then whatever that text is talking about that week, that's what we're going to talk about. All right? That's kind of how that works. And uh, we're gonna, There are a couple of different reasons why we think that might be a better foundation for us. Number one, it's because God's smarter than we are. You ever notice that? I've noticed that. It's definitely true in my life. Um, God's, God's smarter than we are. He's going to introduce subjects that we never thought about or at least didn't think were so important. And, and, and like that's good for us, right? We need to have God's timing and his wisdom and his insight in those moments to press into things that weren't on our radar but honestly probably should have been on our radar. So that's a really good reason to do this. But the second reason, the second reason for preaching through books of the Bible is a better regular diet for us is because, well, God isn't shy about the things that we're typically shy about. You ever seen that? I tend to, my natural bent, I guess, is to run away from things that might be a little controversial. <laughs> Anybody else? No, not at all? All right, might cause me pain. Maybe, maybe just like cause some people who aren't so committed to God's word as their sole authority to bow out and find an easier path. The people who make a living trying to sell you church growth techniques, I've never seen a single one of them put preach the hard texts on their list of things to do to grow your church. Right? It just doesn't come up. It doesn't come up at, at all. And so a commitment, to, a commitment to wherever God might lead us in a text, and that exercises our faith, right? And it exercises our trust in the sufficiency of God's word. It builds us up as as a church, and it nourishes us in a way that the topical series never could even come close to. Both are good, 
Maybe one's primary and the other is ancillary, right? So we want to kick off a new thing this morning, pressing into a book of the Bible that, um, to my knowledge, hasn't been covered here. At least it hasn't been covered in my time here. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse by verse. And so if you've never been around for that, it's kind of a longer deal. Uh, it, but it's a short book. Titus is a short book. It's going to take us like five weeks to do this, all right? So it's not like it's a, it's a major investment. But man, I think it'll be fun. And I think it'll be for our good. It's also got a couple verses in it that if you read ahead, you might be wondering what I'm going to say when we get there, all right? Super fun verses, but you're going to have to wait because we're not there yet. All right, you've got to give me a couple weeks. But you ready to get into it this morning? You ready to dig into this? So what is the book of Titus? Well, it's a letter. It's a letter, simple enough, right? It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a protege slash contemporary of his, somebody who was a protege and became a contemporary, a protege contemporary of his named Titus. From a letter from Paul to Titus. And right out of the gate, we, we got our first little bit of controversy to deal with. Anybody want to guess what it is? Some people, some people, not a lot of people, but some people think that Paul couldn't have possibly written this letter. Not a lot of people. The number seems to be growing lately, but nobody held that position more than about 150 years ago even. But there's a growing contingency now that's like, no, 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 that can't be from Paul. Um... So why do you think that that small group doubts Paul's authorship? It's not. It's not because we found some kind of extant document that's purporting a different theory. We, 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 we believed for 1,500 years, 1,800 years that Paul wrote this letter, and then we found something in an archaeological site and that just wrecks that theory, and so now we have to shuck it all and start over again and come up with a better theory. That's not what has happened. Um, literally, everything we've ever found connected historically to the book of Titus, gives it Paul's authorship. They claim that it's Paul's. It's, 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 it's what uh, Eusebius thinks. It's, it's what Clement thinks. All the oldest historians of the church, they're all on team Paul when it comes to authorship. Literally, it's just the modern academy that calls Paul's authorship into question here. So where does the modern doubt come from then, right? That's, that's a genuine question to ask. If there's this growing group of people in modern scholarship that goes, ah, I can't possibly be Paul, like, where, how do they get there? Well, um, some very influential secular scholars um, who could totally never be accused of bias, um, they have two basic arguments. Two basic arguments. One, I think it's really dumb, and the other is way more reasonable, but has an equally reasonable explanation equally reasonable answer. The first argument is that it, they have simply decided that the pastoral epistles, meaning First and Second Timothy and Titus, those three, they've simply decided that those letters don't sound enough like Paul to believe that it's coming from Paul. They don't think Paul would write like that. They, they take one or two other letters that they believe that Paul did write, may have written, and they compare them to Titus and others and say, nope, nope, it ain't right. It's not right at all. See, I, I see some things wrong. The, the vocabulary is wrong, and I don't see Paul thinking that this thing over here was important in the first letter, so he can't possibly think that it's important now and start writing about it. That's the argument. The argument. It doesn't sound like Paul to me, so it can't possibly be from Paul. Um, not only, not only does that completely ignore, dismiss the idea that Paul is allowed to change how he writes from letter to letter. Would you do that? Um, based on who he's writing to, 
what the topics he's trying to address based on the intimacy level he has with the recipient of the letter. Like, they just ignore every single bit of that. Newsflash, a letter correcting a church that Paul's kind of barely connected to is going to sound different in style and tone than a letter to a friend of his that he shared some foxhole moments with, right? We all on the same page about that? Would you write different letters in those circumstances? Would your approach to writing a letter be the exact same if it was to an organization or to a dear friend of yours or maybe your grandma? Like those are different kinds of letters. And so the idea is pretty ridiculous on the face of it. In fact, it's intellectually dishonest, I think. But it goes even deeper than that because there's a second glaring problem with that argument. You may have heard me say just a second ago that they compare Titus to one or two of the letters that they do believe that Paul actually wrote. Meaning, by the time they get to comparing Titus, they've already dismissed like seven or eight of, other, of Paul's other letters. And a bunch of those letters do sound like First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's a classic case of, we can't find any evidence. Well, what about that pile of stuff over there that looks like evidence? Oh, you can't count that. That's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. Like I said, the first of the two arguments against Pauline authorship is pretty dumb, and that's, that's the polite way of putting it. What about the second? Second, way more reasonable argument. Well, it's this. You cannot place the events mentioned in Titus, or First and Second Timothy either, for that matter. You cannot place the events of Titus anywhere in the book of Acts. You can't find the stuff that's going on. Uh, we're going to learn next week in verse 5 that Paul leaves Titus in Crete, all right? Meaning, Paul and Titus were planting a church in Crete. Paul left to go do something else, and Titus stayed behind to work on some stuff. That's, and so that, that's the scenario that Titus is written into. And that sounds like a really cool story. I would love to hear it sometime. The problem, though, is that the only mention of the, the island of Crete in the entire book of Acts comes in chapter 27 when Paul is under arrest and he's sailing from Caesarea Philippi to Rome. He's not in control of where he's going in that moment. He's not allowed to stop and plant a church for a few months and then carry on his way. And we know for certain that Titus ain't with him during that time period. Crete doesn't come up in any of the three missionary journeys that we see Paul make in the book of Acts. In fact, in all the moments where he is in control of where he's going, he doesn't get anywhere close to Crete. Not even a bit. And so some, some point to that and argue, well, Titus must, must have been written by somebody else then, probably long, long after Paul passed away. Okay, so we got, we got a timeline issue, okay. So some people feel like it's a continuity error. Can, can we deal with that? And that's a way more reasonable concern than it just doesn't sound like Paul to me. So, okay. But is there a reasonable answer to that reasonable question? Yeah, there, there definitely is a reasonable answer. The entirety of that argument is built upon the assumption that Paul dies at the end of the book of Acts. That the story is over. There's no longer any opportunity for Paul to go other places and plant new churches because he's dead. That's the argument. Those of you who know your Bible well, does the book of Acts tell us that Paul dies at the end of chapter 28? No. 
It doesn't. We're told he's imprisoned, and we're also told that the gospel is going forward powerfully. And so we think, we think, putting the pieces together, we think he was under house arrest during this time. He's able to send letters back and forth. He's able to receive visitors. We're even told that he's responsible for paying rent during this time period. You don't pay rent when you're in a dungeon, right? There's not much of a threat of execution at the end of the book of Acts. So the possibility is technically always out there because Rome can do whatever Rome wants, right? On top of that, all of the letters that we think that Paul wrote during this house arrest, so Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all of them, Paul says, hey, I'm coming to see you soon. I'm going to get out of jail and we're going to visit. We've got a lot of really good reason to believe that Paul was eventually released from his imprisonment in Rome after about two years. Now, we also also have really good reason to believe that he was eventually re-arrested within a couple of years, and that second arrest was far more serious, and he was ultimately executed under Nero the second time, somewhere between 65 and 67 A.D., Church history isn't on the same level, doesn't carry the same authority as Scripture does, but the, the church history that's been passed down to us tells us that Paul was ultimately martyred in Rome under the reign of Nero, that he was imprisoned in the famous Mamertine prison in the city of Rome, and that he was executed close to about the same time that Peter was. All right? And if that's true, if that's true, if there were two Roman imprisonments, then, then what happened in between them? Right? That's the question, right? What happened in between those two moments? Looks to be about a five to six year window. What, what happened in the inter-imprisonment period? Well, we're not completely certain. Right? We, we don't actually know. There's no single narrative written of that time period. We have to kind of piece it together with a bunch of different sources. But if, if we take the historic argument and we attribute the pastoral epistles during that timeline, time frame, then... And they all would have been written somewhere between 62 and 66 A.D., after the book of Acts ends. It would also seem to indicate that Paul had something of a fourth missionary journey. Now, we don't know if it was organized or if he's just kind of bouncing around to people he knew and you know, starting some other places, just kind of willy-nilly. Um, but it would seem, by putting the pieces together, that, that he traveled to several other places, including the island of Crete, where he plants a church with Titus. And so a reasonable, a very reasonable thing to question, the dating of Titus, also has an incredibly reasonable answer to the question. We think that Paul wrote it after he got out of jail in Rome, and then he does something dumb and eventually gets arrested again, and he's finally martyred. To doubt, to doubt Paul's authorship, like, of Titus, you've got to simultaneously reject, like, 90% of what Paul wrote and hold to a hardline view of Acts that kind of requires you to believe things that the Bible never requires you to believe. Like, that's a lot of work. That's more work than just believing the historical argument. Which means I, I'm pretty sure I can confidently plant my flag this morning. Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a protege slash contemporary of his named Titus. Um, now, are you ready to stop talking around the letter and actually look at it? We finally got there. Okay. All right. Good. Chapter 1, verse 1. We did the work. Let's, let's take off. 
chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. All right, I got a time, call time out already. All right, so Paul opens up the letter in a way that's really consistent, very similar to most of his other letters, right? You know, poking further holes into the, it just doesn't sound like Paul argument. Um, he calls himself a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. That word servant there, it's the Greek word doulos. Some of you may have come across it before if you spent enough time in church. It literally means a slave. Paul calls himself a slave of God, which is interesting, seeing how we're talking about someone who carries around a ton of spiritual authority, writing a letter to someone else who carries a lot of a spiritual authority. Like, Paul's a church leader, writing to another church leader, addressing a problem that Titus is having in the church. And instead of like puffing up the, the bravado in this moment and you know, giving them some high fives and saying, you got this, I trust you, I put a lot of confidence in you, you carry the mantle of leadership. Instead of doing that, Paul instead sets the tone by reminding Titus of who he and Titus are in the larger kingdom of God. Right? In other words, they're not kings. They're servants. They're slaves. They carry authority, but that authority doesn't belong to them in any intrinsic sense. It's it's a delegated authority. It doesn't belong to them of their own accord. They speak on behalf of Christ, but that message better be consistent or accurately reflect what Jesus told them to say, right? Their style of leadership better accurately reflect the character of the one who raised them up to carry authority on his behalf. This is a fundamental misunderstanding that I think a lot of people have with church leadership. Sadly, sadly because there are a lot of denominational and church structures out there that kind of add to the confusion and enforce the misunderstanding. The entire New Testament is just dripping with church authority of figures who have to sometimes kind of flex that authority for the cause of the gospel and for the good of the people in their care. But nowhere in the New Testament do you see any kind of celebration of an autocratic leadership, ever. The idea that one leader or even a, a small group of leaders carries special status as the mouthpiece of God, either, either because they served as kind of like the priest figure between God and the congregation, or they serve as the prophet figure who's got this special calling, this special gifting that no one else has, and so they speak for God when no one else can. Those two concepts are foreign to the New Testament church. There are Old Testament examples, but they are foreign to the New Testament church, period. Unfortunately, they're not, they're not so foreign to, to the way some supposed church leaders try to posture themselves. It's just the truth. Paul reminds Titus here that that's not their calling. That's not their calling. So what is their calling? Well, it's the second half of the verse, right? For the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the what? The truth. And it's here that we see the key problem that Paul is dealing with in the letter. If you want a quick rundown of of each of Paul's uh, epistles, each of his letters, go look at the greeting. You can always get an idea of what Paul's aiming at in the larger letter by looking at the greeting. It kind of buries a hint of what the letter will be about in in the way that he opens it up. So, So what is the problem that's going on in Crete that kind of forces the writing of this letter? Well, there are false teachers who have risen up from within the church and they have asserted themselves as leaders. 
And that's what's going on. And those bad, self-serving church leaders are laying unnecessary burdens on everyone else. And then to sweeten the pot a little bit, they completely refuse to live up to the demands that they actually place on other people. So not only are they getting the gospel wrong, but they're giant hypocritical jerks about it. It's a fun day. So Paul, so Paul says that he and Titus' roles his and Titus' roles as servants, they exist for an express purpose. Authority and office within the church is not, it's not an end unto itself. It, it, it exists for a purpose. Church leaders exist to lead everyone else to a proper understanding of the gospel. Not, a, not some man-made amalgamation of religious ideas that kind of sound credible, and maybe good to follow, and might get us somewhere. No, Paul calls it the truth. The truth. And that true gospel understanding will naturally, or we could say organically, it will produce godliness. Never an empty hypocrisy. Fundamental truth of the Christian worldview, right knowledge of the gospel must always result in right living of the gospel. I'll say that again because it matters. Right knowledge of the gospel must always result in right living of the gospel. And if it doesn't, your understanding of the gospel is fundamentally flawed in some way. Always. But Paul keeps going in verse 2 because it produces even more than right living. Verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So this true gospel understanding naturally produces godliness, but it doesn't end there, right? I mean, that's a really great thing to produce, but it's, it's not the main goal and intent of the true understanding of the gospel. The true gospel understanding is ultimately aiming at something much, much bigger than earthly life. It's aiming at eternal, eternal life. Now, maybe you're new to church, new to the Bible. What exactly is eternal life? And, and I know some others may think, well, that's kind of an elementary question to ask. As somebody who occasionally does funerals for Christians who had a bunch of non-Christian friends and family members, I can tell you the worst theology I've ever heard said out loud comes at a funeral. Always. Now, funeral's also the worst place to try to address that bad theology. It's not what you were sending there to do. You've got to learn how to bite your tongue a little bit. But you can, if you're the learning type, you can always get a good sense of the syncretism that, that's buried deep, deep within our culture by just simply going to a funeral where there are people who think they understand what the Bible says about death and the afterlife. It's going to come out. They're going to show real quick that their ideas come from about a thousand other places not named the Bible. So in the Bible... If you want the answer, in the Bible, eternal life is not becoming an angel. It's not floating around on a cloud with a harp like you see on Tom and Cherry car cartoons. And it's not some perpetual vacation in whatever you think, whatever form you think the good life is. So I know people who think that heaven will be forever mowing their grass. That sounds like the worst possible scenario for eternity. <laughs> in the Bible... See, in the Bible, eternal life is living forever with the one who is life. It's living forever with the one who is life. Does it, does it include more than that? I, I think I remember reading some other really cool stuff. You bet it includes way more than that. And the Bible teaches that all that stuff is going to be really, really awesome. And, 
And the constant refrain throughout the entire testimony of Scripture is that you will barely even notice all that other awesome stuff because of the surpassing awesomeness of God in his full presence. You want an inside scoop on one of the ways that pastors kind of get a quick read of someone's spiritual maturity? Want to peek behind the curtain? We look for if someone is more excited about Jesus or about Jesus' stuff. Just telling you the truth. We look for if someone is more excited about Jesus or about Jesus' stuff. It'll give us a real quick understanding of what it is you actually value. Paul says that church leaders exist. The reason God created them. They exist to help everyone else come to a true understanding of the gospel that organically produces godliness and then points everyone else to life eternally with God. That's what they exist for. And why can we trust that aim and intent? Paul says, because God never lies. That's why. That's not original to Paul. Uh, He's Alluding to Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel 15, those are Old Testament concepts. The writer of Hebrews does the same thing in, in their letter. Uh, but the Bible is crystal clear. God, is, God cannot lie because God is incapable of lying. It is foreign and outside of his good character. So that means that promises made before the ages began that we're talking about here, we can trust that they're as sure as accomplished. I mean, look at the trustworthiness of the one who's making the promise. Why would we believe anything else? And so for the Christian, you get this word hope here, but for the Christian, hope is a much denser word than the way our world typically tries to use it, or at least in my experience has ever tried to use it. For us, hope is a confidence in what we cannot yet see because of the trustworthiness of who we have already seen. That's what hope means to us. So that leads us to verse verse 3. Look at it. It says, And at the proper time, manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So not only has God uh, made promises towards eternal life, but he's also called the leaders that he raises up within the church to point to that promise over and over and over again like it's going out of style. Right? That's, that's what he calls them to do. That's Paul's calling, that's Titus's calling, and that's going to be the calling of every faithful preacher ever. Keep pointing to it over and over again. We're kind of tired of hearing it. No, it's my job. I've got to keep pointing to it. So we've got an idea of who, who Paul is. We've got an idea of the problems going on in the Cretan church. There's one more question left to answer, and it comes up in verse 4. To Titus. My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So the obvious question is, who in the world's Titus, right? We've got this letter written to a guy who's a church leader. Apparently Paul knows him. Who's Titus? We've seen that he's buddies with Paul, but what else do we know about him? Well, quite a bit, actually. He's never mentioned in the book of Acts. He just, his name never shows up there. But he does show up in about a dozen other places in several of Paul's letters that cause us to believe that he was likely kind of always in the background. 
We think that Titus was always kind of running around. His name is mentioned in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. We think that he was probably from Antioch, so Paul and Barnabas would have met him there. Uh, we think that Paul might have even been the one to share the gospel with him. We don't know. All right? uh, and, but we, we also know that he traveled around a few places with Paul and sometimes on Paul's behalf. Like Paul actually sent him somewhere to do something that Paul couldn't get there to do. There's good reason to believe that he might have carried a letter for Paul to Corinth. If you're familiar with the the terminology, it's the mysterious middle letter. We think that there was this letter that was written between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that was really tear-filled, that Paul had to really get on to him about some stuff, and he references that in 2 Corinthians. And so we don't know anything about that letter other than there was a letter. We think that Titus probably carried that letter to Corinth. If he didn't carry that letter specifically, he carried a different message right on the heels of that letter and was still there when 2 Corinthians was written. And Paul references him in 2 Corinthians saying, hey, you remember that offering that we're taking for Jerusalem? Give the money to Titus. He'll make sure it gets where it needs to go. So Titus carried a lot of trust for Paul. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells the church there that Titus traveled with him to the Jerusalem council. It's a story that plays out in Acts 15, though in Acts he's never mentioned by name. But in Galatians, Paul says that Titus traveled with him to Jerusalem, to that council, but that Paul, quote, refused to circumcise Titus even though he was a Greek. What does that mean? The Jerusalem council in Acts 15 is where the church figured out, solidified their understanding that the Gentiles don't have to live up to the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to become Christians. When it comes to the Jewish diet and the ceremonial washing and most notably circumcision, the Gentiles don't have to fulfill those things in order to become a follower of Jesus. And so, like, like, Titus is there. He's one of the Gentiles. He was incredibly young in the faith then, a young believer, but his presence seemed to play a role also going to learn next week that Paul left Titus in Crete with a ton of delegated responsibility. He was to raise up elders, leaders for the Cretan church from within the Cretan church. Oh, okay. What about that whole true child and a common faith thing? What's that about? Well, there are two other guys that Paul calls like spiritual sons of his in the New Testament. Timothy and Onesimus. Both those guys were really, really special to Paul. Probably ought to assume that Titus was as well. So all of that is to say, Titus is probably due more attention than what we normally give him. God continually used him in a big way. Most often it seems behind the scenes. Right? And the letter that bears his name, it's, it's a letter that's written to a faithful servant trying to maintain faithfulness in a local church, wrestling with questions of leadership and of doctrine and of everyday life, right? That's what the book of Titus is. That leads me to believe that this letter is going to be really, really valuable for us, right? I think God will use it for our good. I think he'll use it for his glory. But like, what, what do we do with this stuff now, right? It, it, I mean, we looked at an introduction today. Like, and that's it. Uh, like, we talked about a, the setup of a letter that we haven't really dug our teeth into yet. Is, is the promise that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and good for our growing? 
Is that true of introductions? So, so how in the world could we possibly call people to respond to, to God's word this morning? We haven't parsed any major doctrine. We haven't come across any like instructions for life change. How, how do we respond today? Well, I think our response probably is best focused on thinking very, very carefully about what it is we want as a church, right? What do we want from our leaders? What do we want of our doctrine? What it is that we want to be known for here? What does it mean to speak on behalf of Christ and to represent Him as a church? And, and then, how do, how do the leaders that we raise up here, myself and others, how do we faithfully model that Christ-like leadership? And, and what do we do if we're not? Right? One of the things we're going to see in this letter is that bad leadership emerged in Crete precisely because good leadership didn't. You feel the weightiness of that problem? Bad leadership emerged in Crete precisely because good leadership did not rise up. But that's not, that's not an isolated Cretan issue. That's leadership everywhere. That's how leadership works all over the place. And so we want, to, we want to humble ourselves before God's word this morning and make sure that what we hold up as our structures and what we hold up as the people we place in that structure is actually a good thing and not just some kind of slap together mess. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, our response is the same as it is, as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean in to what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And this week, I think he's showing us that Jesus came to serve. But also, that every single thing left behind by him to represent him is called to that same kind of humble service. We don't do autocracy here. But neither do we do direct democracy we're not aiming at what we think is the best earthly system. We're aiming at something otherworldly. We're aiming at something that only God can accomplish. We're aiming at kingdom values that sometimes, every once in a while, run the opposite direction than consensus. I'm going I'm to go ahead and guess that that's going to take a lot of spiritual maturity on our part to wade through. So the smart thing to do the really wise thing for us to do would be for us to humbly beg God for it before we find ourselves in a place where we desperately need it. Hope that he provides in advance. And so our response this morning, we want to give you some space to do that. God, would you help us structure ourselves correctly and raise up the, the people that you would put in those places so that we honor you and accurately reflect you. But if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, how can you respond? Well, you can respond by meeting Jesus. All this talk about church leadership and about style and structure, those are, that's a second-level discussion by those who already belong to the kingdom trying to kind of hammer out things correctly, right? But before that conversation has any relevance to you, you first need to deal with the primary concern of actually being a part of Jesus' kingdom. Hammering out all the structure stuff, doesn't matter if you're not inside the structure. The Bible teaches that all peoples, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the right and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it hell. It's not a fun thing. 
But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us even while we were sinners, that Christ died for us to make us alive. The eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelled among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I or even ever come close to being capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfect and sinless substitute in your place to make payment in full for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of everything that he promised he would do. And now as the one who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith and to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Today's a good day to respond to God's word by meeting Jesus. And so in a moment, I'm gonna, we're going to sing, I'm going to pray, and I'll stand down there. If you want somebody to talk to, you can, we can talk about it. I'd love to help walk you through what that responsive faith looks like. I'm here for it. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's, maybe it's time to formally join this church family. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to say yes to his calling on your life to take the gospel to some other faraway place. Man, I'd love to help you game those things out too. Let's talk. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, whoever you are, however God, God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Titus. Thank you that we can bring all of who we are to the scriptures and we can compare ourselves to the text and we can figure out where things work and where things don't and where things line up to who you've called us to be and where things don't and now, we'll confess that we don't have all the answers, but you do. And we don't have the wisdom necessary to always do it right, but you do. So help us humble ourselves before you. For those of us who are leaders here, definitely help us humble ourselves before you. Help us to not only accurately reflect you in word, but also in deed. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you call people into your kingdom today? As we respond, would you work through that, mo- that time, work through that response to create a people for yourself that looks more and more every day like the kingdom that is to come? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.